Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are talking about lambda encodings. This is Chapter 6 of the podcast. And a lambda encoding is a way of representing data as functions. We've talked about several lambda encodings so far. We talked about the church encoding, where data are represented as their own fold functions, like fold right. And this is a very nice and natural way to write a certain class of recursive functions, but unfortunately is a little awkward for things like predecessor of a number or tail of a list, or in general getting the immediate subdata of a piece of data, because you have to do that with a fold, and this can be done, but it takes time linear in the size of the data, and it's unnatural. So it throws off your asymptotic complexities, and it's just kind of weird to have to do that. We then talked about the perigo encoding, which solves this problem by the sort of pretty obvious and natural uh, idea of having the combining function that your fold uh, that that constitutes the data is taking, having this combining function receive the immediate subdata as an extra argument. So for NAT, where the church encoding says you give an x to x function and an x, and you get an x back from the number, the x to x function being the interpretation of successor, the other x being the, the, z, the interpretation of zero, and then the x you get back is the interpretation of the whole number. That's for church encoding. For perigo encoding, you say the combining function is an x to nat to x function, and that nat is the predecessor. And this lets the combining function do things like simply just return the predecessor if that's what you're trying to do, if you don't actually need to use the value of, that you get by recursion on the predecessor. And so church encodings can be typed in system F, which guarantees normalization. So any program you can write with church encoded data is guaranteed to terminate. So you get strong functional programming. If you uh, just restrict yourself to church encodings in system F, don't add anything else. You're not allowed to add a function for doing general recursion, of course, because that would let you write looping terms. And perigo encoding also um, preserves normalization because you can type the perigo encoding in system F plus positive recursive types. Positive recursive means you're, you have this type that can, you know, you're giving a definition of a type, a recursive definition of a type, like nat equals, and then you say blah, 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 and then somewhere in there there's some nat, again, you're allowed to have, but you're only allowed to have it in a positive position, where positive means to the left of an even number of arrows, the arrows for the function type. And so if you follow this discipline of system F plus positive recursive types, you are still normalizing, you still have a normalizing or even terminating language. And so you can write now a, a bit broader class, at least naturally express a broader class of functions because now you can write accessors for the subdata of your data. And they will take constant time. You haven't thrown off your asymptotic complexities. The only thing that's a little bit off with the Paragon coding is that the size of normal forms is exponential in the size of the represented data. So that's a little bit of a bummer. Um, some people have kind of, I think, misinterpreted that as being some kind of absolute showstopper. You couldn't use the Paragon coding in practice. It's just another intellectual curiosity. No, no, that's not true because, as I mentioned several times, like a decent implementation of Lambda calculus will do enough graph sharing that your Paragon encoded number is going to be size linear in the size of the represented number. 
It's just when you actually go to try to print it out, if you aren't careful, I mean, you could have something that prints out your Lambda terms also with sharing, either by explicitly representing the sharing in your, in your syntax for terms that you print out, or by just introducing some lets. You know, just say let, you know, this equal something, you know, let x1 equal this in, let x2 equal that. And you can use lets, which of course are just um, hidden beta redexes. When you say let x equal 3 in x plus x, that's the same thing as taking lambda x, x plus x, and applying it to 3. So a let is really just a beta redex in a more convenient notation. So if you printed out your lambda terms with sharing, then they also, you wouldn't have a problem either. But if you print them out as just pure lambda term with no attempt to share in the, the syntactic output, the actual sh shared structures of the lambda term, then it's going to blow up. It's going to be exponential size. And in practice, that actually really is kind of a pain. When we were have been experimenting with different lambda encodings here and used Perigo encoding for a while or tried it out, um, it, it, it is annoying to have it print out you know, these humongous terms when you're trying to debug some little piece of code and you run some test case with like four and five, all of a sudden you've got screenfuls of Perigo encoding for these numbers when, you know, in its like first cut implementation such as we have or had at that point, we're not trying to print these things out in any sophisticated way. So you would just get a big dump of your Lambda term. Uh, anyway, so um, Church encoding, Perigo encoding. Now, uh, I want to touch on another encoding. I, we are Lambda encoding city over here. We know a lot about Lambda encodings which probably most people don't care about. But for us, it's been a very important, uh, useful tool for um, creating our Sedil language that we're working on. And uh, so I'm going to tell you about several more. And in fact, I'm sort of debating whether I should be breaking up this very long Chapter 6, which is going to have more and more Lambda encodings into something else. But, you know, Lambda encodings 1 and Lambda encodings 2, I don't know. But uh, I want to tell you briefly about a Lambda encoding known as the Scott encoding. It's due to the great computer scientist, Dana Scott, uh, who has lots of deep contributions uh, at the sort of intersection of math and uh, theoretical computer science. And he, uh, he proposed this encoding apparently in just some draft notes that were circulated. Uh, it's, you can't actually find this in a published paper. And the only the published source for this is... Uh, Berendrecht, the Berendrecht book. I forget now. I think it's just the Lambda Calculus book, the 1981 or whatever it is. Lambda Calculus book um, reports, uh, or actually might be reporting on Curry and Faze. There's a book by Haskell Curry and Faze. May, I forget the sort, the reference. But anyway, it's not, you can't just find a paper by Scott that has this. You, but other people knew about it from Scott and mentioned it in their books. And so this encoding is, a, a, I mean, in a sense, I'm telling the story a little backwards because this is historically before the Perigo encoding. Um, and, but also you could see the Perigo encoding as attempt to combine the Church encoding and the Scott encoding. Um, so I, I told you about Church first and Perigo second, um, partly because there's sort of like a natural progression from understanding that Church encoding kind of almost, almost does what you think you would want to do right at the beginning with uh, writing some recursive functions and computing with 
your Lambda encoded data, but it just has that one Achilles heel about the accessors. And Perigo encoding solves that. So now we kind of feel like we're in the happy land where our Lambda encodings are working. Now, it's actually not quite so simple because there's lots of interesting programs that you can't express naturally even with something like the Perigo encoding. So we need yet more Lambda encodings for that. <laughs> but um, but uh, for starters, though, and this is important for segueing into these other Lambda encodings, we let's talk about the Scott encoding. And it's a simple, you could, you could think of it, again, doing this sort of historically wrong progression, you could think of it as a simplification of the Perigon encoding, where your combining function is given the predecessor data, but it's actually not given the result of the recursion on that predecessor data. So the combining function for a natural number, instead of being in the church encoding, it's like x to x. In the Perigon encoding, it's x to nat to x. Um, and in the Scott encoding, it's just nat to x. You don't get that that x input, which is the value that you're recursively computing for the predecessor. That's not provided to the combining function. So all it gets is the immediate subdata. It does not get the result of recursion on that immediate subdata. And uh, this, you know, and so this could also be typed in. Um, system f with positive recursive types because you're saying nat equals for all x nat to x to x to x and so there's a nat there but it's still in a positive position it's to the left of two arrows again very similar to what the paragon cutting would have except you've just dropped this first input to the combining function instead of x to nat to x you just have nat to x you say well you know so what, what are, let's assess this encoding we hear so far so it's it's kind of like, it's like a kind of truncated version of the Perigo encoding. It can still be typed in system F plus positive recursive types. Um, so what are its pros and cons? Well, one positive thing for it is that you can compute accessors of data for data types in constant time. So you can get the predecessor of a number, the tail of a list in constant time for the same reason that you could with the Perigo encoding. The combining function is given the subdata, and so it can just return it if you want to compute a predecessor. So that's good. It has another actual advantage over the Paragon coding, which is the size of normal forms. If you just print these out as pure lambda terms without any attempt to share things, you don't have this explosion because, you know, the the Scott encoding of three, uh, so we need to, if you think about, okay, let's, we've been talking a lot about how you use these lambda encodings, so what is the view from outside the lambda coding? of the data, but the view from inside the data is, well, I'm, the data says, okay, I'm going to take in this combining function and this interpretation for zero, and then I'm going to apply the combining function uh, sometimes to the interpretation of zero. And so for the Scott encoding, it says, all right, I'm going to take in the Scott encoding of, say, two is going to, or let's say three, it's going to be lambda s, lambda z, s of two. Where two now would say, okay, I'm lambda s, lambda z, s of one, one would say I'm lambda s, lambda z, s of zero, and zero would say I'm lambda s, lambda z, z. Okay, so we don't have an exponential blow up here because each number just has its predecessor. It doesn't have a cascade of predecessors sort of embedded in a bunch of calls to this combining function s. That's what goes wrong with the Perigon coding from a space perspective. You know, the Perigon coding of three says I'm lambda s, lambda z, S of 2 applied to S of 1 applied to S of 0 applied to Z. Right? That's like a bunch of all the smaller numbers are included, and each of them in turn includes 
all the smaller numbers as well. And so that's where you get an exponential um, space requirement for the normal forms. Scott encoding, you don't have that. Hey, that's really great. So they're linear, just naively printed out with no sophisticated printing for sh dealing with sharing. You get something of space um, that's size linear in the size of represented number. Awesome. Or represented data more generally. This is really great. Well, <laughs> what's the downside? Hopefully, if you're following along, you know, if you kind of get what we're talking about, there's a glaring downside, which is there's no way to really do any recursion here. You're just given the predecessor of a number or you're given the tail of a list or the left and right subtrees of a binary tree. That's all really great. But how do I make a recursive call on those things? I'm trying to define some function by recursion. Like maybe I'm trying to find the depth of a binary, of a binary tree by recursion on the tree. And so I'm kind of like, all right, to compute the depth of a, tr of a leaf, it's, let's say, it's zero. And to compute the depth of a node, it's going to be one plus, I would like to say, the max of the depths of the left and the right subtrees. But hey, I have to actually have the recursive value that I, has been computed for left and right subtrees. And with the Scott encoding, you don't get that. <laughs> all you get are the left and right subtrees. You say, well, can I make a recursive call? Nope, not if you're working in this pure type theory that doesn't have any other form of recursion. All the recursion is just being done by the lambda encoding. If there's no general recursor available, then you cannot. Um, now, actually, there's a very funny story here, which is that um, that's the received wisdom, and I would have told you that's absolutely correct, but there is a surprising result that there is a sneaky way that you actually can do recursion with Scott encoded data, um, but that's, I don't have time to, to even begin to mention that right now. Well, I guess I did begin to mention, but to go further. Um, so basically, without a, without a pretty sophisticated technique, uh, you can't use these for, um, for actually doing anything recursive. Now, some people out there, I've, there's a paper by um, Plusmeyer, I think is the name. I, I forget now. Um, I think it's called something like Church Encoding is Considered Harmful or something like that. I forgot what it is. Sorry to the author if you happen to hear about this. Um, it's a nice paper in which they say they use Scott encodings. They don't want to use Church Encodings. or I think they even mentioned Perigo Encodings and say they don't want to use those either. They use Scott Encodings for something. I don't quite remember what their motivation was. And they just simply make use of a general recursor that they have available in their setting. That's fine. That's totally fine. So then you're representing the data as their own case statements, basically. So you just get the subdata. It's like you get your own depth one pattern match like you would have in some sort of simplified implementation of a Haskell or whatever like this. Um, and so that, so you get pattern matching and your recursion is separate. But if you're working in a pure type theory, you can't do that. There's no other general recursor available to you. You need to have all your recursion happening from your Lambda encoding. And so that, that approach... Uh, is limited. It wouldn't work in that case. Um, so, but the Scott encoding, anyway, it is a important encoding, and we can take it kind of a different direction. So, it, what you know, I guess I said the Perigo encoding could be viewed as a generalization of the Scott encoding, where you just give it instead of not just the immediate subdata, you give it the the uh, value of recursion for that subdata as well as the subdata, right? So it's kind of like, in fact, some people actually call the Perigo encoding the Church-Scott encoding. It kind of combines the, these elements of the two of them. Church, you get the results of recursion, but no subdata. Scott, you get the subdata, but no results of recursion. Hey, let's put the peanut butter and chocolate together here, and you get the Perigo encoding. Um, so anyway, and that's kind of a, a nice perspective to have for what I will talk about, I think, the next time, which would be the Mendler encoding. 
um, which gives us some advantages over both of these methods. Okay, so that's it for now. Thank you for listening.